tend to label food as Greek or Turkish or Indian or Chinese, and, and if you go to a restaurant of those names, you expect to be served a certain thing. But it's interesting when we've been served these dishes by Seema tonight, you see that these dishes are actually, these cuisines actually sort of graduate into one another. They're, they blur at the edges. Uh, ingredients travel across, names change, uh, methods of cooking change, but they're actually quite related. Pete Spurrier, the editor of Blacksmith Books, with his thoughts on food and how it changes as it journeys along the Silk Road. Last week, as we gathered round the table, we featured part one of our Silk Road stories, looking at the journeys of food along the western part of the Silk Road. Today we'll continue that journey, but we'll move east, starting with Tibet, and then moving into Afghanistan and down to India. Asian Asian Threads Spinning the tales of Asian communities and cultures, their personal accounts, their history, and their literature. This program is sponsored by the Wing Foundation. Road, as you know, was the route that linked the ancient Chinese empire to the west. Around the same time, another great trading route meandered through the deep jungles of eastern and central Tibet to Nepal, India, Sikkim, Bhutan, as well as West Asia and the Red Sea. This is the route that is called the Tea Horse Trade Route, also sometimes referred to as the Southern Silk Road. The Tibetan plateau is very high up, with an average altitude of 4,000 meters. The staple foods of the country are mainly yogurt, butter, beef, and mutton. Vegetables were rarely supplied because the Tibetan plateau was not suitable for planting vegetables in ancient times. But that did change over the years. Bhatia of Magnet Concepts whet our appetites in Tibetan cuisine by preparing a dish called Shogu Khasta, potatoes cooked in a chili sauce. Coming along the spice route as you travel down, I feel personally that the journey becomes more colorful and vibrant. It's getting spicier and hotter. So we've got basically this is a it's a chili sauce. It's just potatoes cooked in a chili sauce and uh, as Dan very rightfully told us earlier on, chilies come from Ecuador. In fact, they say they were cultivated in South America 6,100 years ago. And uh, potatoes come from South America, so they say. So as you come along the spice route, you see different elements from different countries coming into Tibet. China, as you know, is very closely linked to Tibet. In 640 CE, the emissaries of Songsan Gambo, one of Tibet's most powerful rulers, arrived at the border of China to escort the Tang Dynasty princess Wencheng to Tibet. There, a year or so later, she married King Gambo, the 33rd ruler of the Tubo Dynasty. In the Chinese view, Wencheng was one of a number of so-called diplomat brides who brought much-needed Han Chinese culture to the peoples beyond their borders, whom the imperial court often looked down upon as barbarians. 
In Tibet, generations of poets have written numerous verses to eulogize her. Her statue and that of Songtsan Gambo are worshipped in the Jokang Monastery. And the chamber where they first spent their married life is still kept intact there as well. Wencheng thus served to forge a cultural as well as political link between China and Tibet. The People's Republic of China claims that Tibet is an integral part of the mainland. The Tibetan government in exile maintains that Tibet is an independent state under unlawful occupation. Sarah Pringle, an art advisor here in Hong Kong, said that the food and culture of Tibet is very closely linked to what you can see in the Yunnan province. You'd find a lot of people in on uh, the Chinese side would actually consider themselves Tibetan more than Chinese. Um, but that's why is that? Issue. Um, I think just because historically and just their whole culture is much more aligned with being they they their Tibetan culture, but obviously the boundaries have moved um, over the years. Um, but I think in terms of certainly you go up there in terms of obviously, you know, tonight talking about food. Um, what is interesting in Yunnan, when you eat the food there, it is, is definitely of a certain type that feels more Tibetan than Chinese. Um, and obviously it's a lot of yak, which wasn't particularly my favorite, but also dishes like you've had those sort of root vegetables um, with the spices that we had tonight. And uh, I can understand why Simo was saying they're very Moorish, because they're certainly something that you think, you know, it's, it's very warming, what very fit, you know, wonderfully filling. So sort of, it got a great kick to it. So uh, yeah. Any it, it, was there anything else you found in the Yunnan province that uh, not to do with food that was particularly Tibetan? Uh, I think just going around the the markets there, the clothes that people wear, um, the music that you hear played, the Tibetan, the Buddhist monasteries. Um, it's yeah. It to, to me, it felt like being it, everything I sort of imagined and you read about being in Tibet. worked for the Mandarin Oriental Group, gives us a different historical take. The Chinese University of Hong Kong is celebrating its uh, 50th anniversary, so its golden anniversary. And part of that is there's an exhibition at the Art Museum there called Radiant Legacy, Golden China. And a third of the exhibition is actually articles from uh, ancient Tibet, or Tebo as it was known. So there's this sort of current subjugation of Tibetan culture. And funnily enough, uh, Tibetan cuisine is getting renaissance with the Tibetan diaspora in, in Dharamsala in North India and in Delhi. And uh, in the dish we've just had, you can actually see there's a very significant amount of, of garlic in addition to chilli, uh, giving the, you know, that influence from North India and Nepal. <laughs> Pete Spurrier also notices similarities in the topography and geography of Tibet and the Yunnan province. You know, you get to the border regions of Yunnan and, and Tibet and even Sichuan and Tibet and, and you, you can instantly see that um, the people there are Tibetan. 
uh, not just in the way they dress and the way they look, but their houses as well. Um, suddenly, um, the Chinese farmhouses disappear, and you get these Tibetan farmhouses. Uh, if, if you take small buses between towns, which is the way you have to travel if you're going between these provinces, um, suddenly you notice the houses in, 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 the, in the, um, and the landscape are like little fortresses. Um, really, really sort of like they're built to, um, withstand attack by bandits, and that, those, that's the Tibetan style. Uh, very, like, like a sort of, um, trapezoid going up to a, a, a thinner top than at the bottom, painted very colourfully. And these are the Tibetan, um, the, the settled Tibetans, not the nomadic ones. The, the architecture was one of the striking differences. And they are the courtyard houses. And so they are, as you said, sort of almost like fortified, but also you keep all your animals living with you. And that was one of the things I, I remember meeting, uh, a guide that we had in one of the Tibetan, uh, well, one of the monasteries um, who was who was Tibetan and was saying that they of course they live with their animals and and they are Buddhist so they are vegetarian so you do have vegetarian cuisine but they also they live in very harsh environments so you can traditionally you don't have the luxury of being able to survive on vegetables especially during the the winter months so they do actually eat meat um, but there's a whole way that they do that it's 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 very much you, you know, you almost have to sort of worship, you know, there's a great, I don't know how, how I would put it, so I'm not saying this very well, but you uh, respect that you give to the animal that has given its life to enable you to carry on living. And so there's this amazing ceremony that these people have with which they look after their animals, nurture animals. It's a great sacrifice when you have to kill them in, in the winter months for you to survive. And, and it's a completely different ethos that we have with our sort of packaged foods in Western culture. And I think that they are very much, I mean, Pete's a vegetarian, but I think you would, you mentioned a story earlier where you meet, eat meat. I mean, of course, you do what you do to survive, but it's more of a respect for that animal that's died for you to, to live that was, that was very evident in, in Yunnan. <laughs> continue our Silk Road journey down into Afghanistan and India. Afghanistan has been a major ancient focal point of the Silk Road and human migration. Three decades of war made it one of the world's most dangerous countries. While the international community is rebuilding war-torn Afghanistan, terrorist groups such as the Haqqani Network and the Hezbi Islami are actively involved in a nationwide Taliban-led insurgency, which includes hundreds of assassinations and suicide attacks. But even in the face of all this, a new Silk Road vision offers Afghanistan a brighter future. As this year brings important security, political and economic transitions to the country, it is already becoming more economically connected to its neighbors and advancements in media and communications are just part of its substantial progress. 
But let's not forget that food-wise, Afghanistan has been connected to its neighboring countries for centuries. We're having next is an Afghani kadu burani. It's a yogurt dish and I chose it because I thought it would just ease off the heat from the sugar khasta. Um, it's basically Greek yogurt and traditionally the dish the dish is cooked with uh, chunks of pumpkin that are uh, that are stir-fried with garlic and a tomato paste but of course i drew on my western style of cooking and i roasted the pumpkin with the garlic just to caramelize it and get it a lot sweeter mixed it into the yogurt and then added some elements from afghanistan of course pomegranate my mother grew up in pre-partition india and uh, she has very strong memories of uh, the opulent abundant cuisine that they enjoyed near the afghani border raisins pistachios almonds and she would always rave about the pomegranates along with the afghani kaddu burani seema prepared a persian jeweled rice or jawahar polo just over the border from afghanistan there's there's one of these new stands uzbekistan um these the cities on this trade route were often oases you know the, the caravans would travel between different oases uh, and get their water uh, with their camel trains and, and move on and in one of these old towns um i i came across a place which was a natural sort of fountain um a, a pool fed by a spring which they'd built mosques around and and madrasas uh, islamic schools um and because those were built in the middle ages uh, when they were prosperous towns and then when the portuguese found a way to china by sea that trade route fell out of use nothing's ever been redeveloped so everything is as it was in the middle ages and there beside this pool underneath this minaret um of of blue tiles so it looks um refreshing when you come to this across the desert you see these blue tiles in the sky before you get there makes you think of water um there there was a big um uh, what you'd call a wok really uh, and, and a man cooking pilaf uh, yellow rice and raisins and nuts in this massive big wok and everyone's sitting around eating it on um low wooden tables like sort of um divans and drinking black tea this is a little bit like going back into the middle ages Named for its gemstone colors, saffron carrots and orange peel make gold, barberries make rubies, pistachios make emeralds, almonds make pearls. Jeweled rice is traditionally served at wedding celebrations. So basically um this is a North Indian dish. Um North Indians basically given the topography of the land don't grow rice, so the staple carbohydrate is is wheat. So uh, bread such as naan, parathas, puris, roti. So the wedding one has to have something which is different and hence they would have rice and rice doesn't keep very well north index historically you had weevils which would uh, you know d- destroy the the stored rice rice grains so rice was very expensive and special it would only be served at at weddings or at diwali or at muslim festivals such as eid it would be the savory or sweet rice depending on which eid so this dish basically is rice but not just plain rice it has to look special because it's a wedding like the bride it's decorated with jewelry it's called zewa zohra in in persian or farsi and uh, basically studded with different gems things like pistachios raisins um almonds are very expensive so they're only used 
for particular sweetmeats or uh, uh, celebrations. And hence, uh, this rice dish has got all of them in, in one dish, literally to show it's a very special occasion uh, to celebrate the new bride entering the family. Dan, what is your most peculiar Northern Indian wedding story? Um, gosh, I, I think all Northern Indian weddings are quite peculiar because any, anything's really possible. Um, a typical wedding would last uh, anything from sort of uh, a short wedding would be three days, and that would be a very condensed wedding, but typically about a week. Uh, and those of you who have probably experienced of North Indian weddings is, um, you know, monsoon wedding. Um, it really is like that. It's it's like a, a wedding, you know, it's not scripted to be sort of fun. Uh, Indian weddings are quite mad. The Indian diaspora is quite large all over the world. Here we are sitting in Hong Kong and we're from different parts of India via different countries. And wedding is one time, unlike a funeral, where everyone's come together for a happy, happy time. So everyone goes, uh, goes crazy. that even Bedouin weddings in the Middle East still celebrate with the very same rice. The rice there, actually, I, 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 it wasn't a North Indian wedding. It's actually a Bedouin wedding that I went to in the Emirates um, about sort of, gosh, over 20, 22, 23 years ago. And it, they, they, as part of the ceremony, it's exactly the same rice. So obviously for the same sort of hi- historic reasons. Um, but they had it in a, sh- in a lamb. And the lamb would be cut and the rice would be stuffed into the roasted lamb. But it was the same sort of, uh, you know, saffron colored, jeweled rice that you had. And it was just amazing. And this sort of incredible feast that you had. And, the the wedding then it's a little bit like your experience then in Bradford in a sense in in it's it's spectacular all the lights and the dancing but being a Bedouin wedding in the Middle East they were eunuchs actual eunuchs (laughs) so I was I was told um because the the wedding ceremony that I went to was the female wedding ceremony so the only men that were there were not entirely men and then we had this big feast and it, 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 obviously this is a food program. So talking about the food, the, the lamb and the rice, and it was amazing. And there was also something that in my naivety as a sort of girl coming from the UK, my f- sort of first job in the Middle East, wanting to try everything. And there was something that actually I thought looked like an egg. Um, a bit like a pickled egg <laughs> that you'd have. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll try it. Oh, it's obviously an egg. And ate it, and the uh, Arabic lady next to me went, oh, really, not all you British people will ever eat that. You're a very brave girl. And I was thinking, oh, Christ. I suddenly remembered what it was that I'd eaten. And, it, yeah, sheep's balls. <laughs> so, and, yeah, I can't particularly remember the taste. I just remember digesting it very quickly. But um, 
but anyway, the rice stuck in my mind, <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, that was my my uh, bedroom wedding story. one of the oldest civilizations which certainly doesn't need any introduction. Seema prepared the Jawahar Polo with Northern Indian Chicken Curry, a recipe from New Delhi. This is a dish for special occasions, not for any other reason except that it is rich, spicy, thick, creamy. The gravy is inspired by the food of Central Asia and came to India during the rule of the famous Mughal dynasty. This dish actually holds a very special place in my heart. It's a North Indian chicken curry for the non-vegetarians and a matar paneer, which is peas and cottage cheese for the vegetarians. It's combined with a Persian rice pilau. Now, I don't know if I'm saying this correct, Jehovah pilau, which is a very opulent, abundant dish in Iran. The barberries reflect garnets or rubies. The carrots and the oranges in the rice are gold. The almonds are pearls and the pistachios are emeralds. Now there's a very, very strong link between the, the Iranians who traveled down into North India. In fact, my grandmother used to say our ancestors are Aryans and they came from Persia. So this dish is, this dish reflects a journey coming through Iran into North India. So I'm serving it along with a North Indian chicken curry, which has been simmered, very slow simmered with fenugreek. Of course, onions, ginger, garlic as the base, tomatoes, fenugreek, cloves, cinnamon, um, a little bit of nutmeg. That's my take on it. Uh, and it's uh, sim with a lot of milk and clarified butter. It's been slow simmered on a very low flame in milk, and but you won't uh, you won't get the very strong milk tones in the curry. And it's got all the Indian spices: cumin, coriander, fenugreek. I mentioned earlier, garlic, ginger as the base with onions, tomatoes, and coriander. Now on this, I was I mentioned earlier the Afghanistan, the herbs we used mint. In northern India, we use coriander. Regardless of how big or small the budget, Indian weddings are all about fun. Sometimes they tend to be a little bit over the top. They don't even have to be based in India. My um, 
Rocky's Malni's wedding, and she lives in Hong Kong. It was in Bali. And uh, basically, they waited so long for, for her and Amit to sort of propose and get married. Everyone was ecstatic. They had the wedding in Bali, and they hired these priests in, in the rainy season, not very clever. But they hired all these priests to, to do prayers. So the, the prayers actually worked, because until they did the final seven rounds around the fire, it did not rain. And as soon as they'd finished the seventh round, the heavens opened. And there was water pouring right through the, the wedding tents and everything. Eventually, people just started jumping in the pool, and um, eventually the whole, and most of them were actually from Hong Kong, ended up in the pool. And the next morning, um, myself and, and um, another couple of chaps who were in the same villa had to have snorkels and, and actually look for lost uh, earrings and lost uh, jewellery and things which were, which were actually at the bottom of the pool. Jenny Marsh had an interesting story about her experience with Indian weddings in England. When I was about 24, I had the most unusual job of my life. I was hired to be a reporter for a newspaper called The Asian Express in Bradford, which was basically me as a white Jewish girl going to all these mosques and turning up to report on stories. And I would turn up saying I was from The Asian Express. And the look on these men's faces was just really, really, you sure? Um, but after a while, they kind of, they came to accept me and it was like the most fun job I've ever had. Um, but the funny thing was when I joined it, I didn't like curry. So one of my jobs was to review curry houses in Bradford, which are some of the best ever, and I didn't like curry. Um, but I got to like curry a lot. And after about six months, one of the curry house uh, owners invited me to his daughter's wedding. Um, and I think Dan was saying earlier that in the south of England, it's mainly uh, people from Bangladesh who open the restaurants. But in the north of England, in Yorkshire, it's actually people from the north of India, mainly from Kashmir. Uh, Kashmir Pakistani people. So this was the kind of food that was served at this wedding. And it was just the most fun wedding ever. Like, it was so much fun. It was so bling. There were TV screens everywhere, dancing. Like, it was really just nothing like an English wedding at all, just completely fun and informal. Um, and the food was great. I had a good time. And the best thing was, on the way home from it, we were walking through Bradford, and there was a big, like, uh, old-fashioned city hall in Bradford, and there was a rally happening at that time. And there was loads of stuff going on back then. It was, um, there were also lots of Palestinian Muslims in Bradford. And there were big rallies happening. There was lots of tension. And it was actually Benazir Bhutto's son, um, Blauer Bhutto. He was Oxford at that time. He was in Bradford. He'd just taken over the party. And he was giving a rally. So in all our wedding gear, like having eaten all this food, we all kind of stumbled into the Bradford City Hall and then watched... Um, Balawa Bhutto give one of his first speeches for the party. And it was just one of the best days of my life, considering that I began that year not liking curry and I ended up going to an Indian wedding and seeing that happen. It was great. Although the Silk Road was traditionally named for the silk that was traded along these ancient routes, 
What we discovered on this particular evening, or perhaps I should say rediscovered, was that the food that journeyed along these routes was actually united by the spices that travelled from land to land. And spice was something that was actually carried along the Silk Route,、uh, as well as silk、uh, and porcelain. So it's it's the way the spices have been interpreted, whether they're involved in marinating the food, or cooking at the beginning, or tempering right at the end. So I think it's it's the technique,、uh, but the underlying thread is、um, is basically spice. I think what's been interesting this evening, eating all these dishes on the Silk Road, is how they're related to each other, and how the more you think about this one thing, like the dish, the vegetarian dish with the cottage cheese in. I didn't realize before that Israel had been on the Silk Road. I remember eating some of the best cottage cheese there. So it kind of makes you realize the food relationship between all these countries, which have completely different cultures in some cases, and now like to think of themselves as very different and might argue with each other, but they have all this food history in common. Brings us to the end of our exploration of food journeys along the Silk Road. Join us for another episode of Asian Threads next week, same time, same place, right here on Radio Three. Asian Threads. Asian Threads is sponsored by the Wing Foundation.